0: Just around the corner, there's a rainbow in the sky, so let's have another cup of coffee, let's have another piece of pie, trouble's just a bubble, and the clouds will soon roll by, so let's have another cup of coffee, and let's have another piece of pie, let a smile be your umbrella. For it's just an April shower Even John D. Rockefeller Is looking for the silver lining Mr. Herbert Hoover Says that now's the time to buy So let's have another cup of coffee
1: And let's have another piece of pie (laughs) We are back. Two hours a week is all we ask for the real estate coffee break. And I am thrilled to have you with us. Let's get this show on the road. Gave you 100,000 watts of power, but it's up to you to put them to work. This is the John Adams Radio Show. (music) Bringing you truth, justice, and the American way of making money. I'm John Adams. Seated firmly in the free enterprise chair, speaking directly into the golden EMR microphone, this is Excellence in Money Radio. Coming to you live from an undisclosed location in a bunker somewhere in the southeastern United States, perhaps Southern Command headquarters on beautiful St. Simons Island the Crown Jewel of Georgia's Coastal Empire. Thence broadcast 23,300 miles directly into outer space. This week affiliates, SATCOM 5. Thence rebroadcast all across the Fruited Plain to our vast EMR Network. 331 stations plus the island of Guam. That's just the way it is. I am thrilled to have you with us for this special edition of the John Adams Radio Show. Let not your hearts be troubled. We will solve your real estate problems today. And it's time we get the show on the road with Superman dominating the picture there. Good old George Reeves. What can we say about George? Well, he was a great Superman. First, I do need to warn you that the views and opinions expressed on this program do not necessarily reflect the opinion of station management or our advertisers, but they should because this program Makes more sense than anything else out there. A special thank you to our sponsors this week, Peter Burke at Reliant Mortgage Solutions. Here is that easy to remember telephone number 678 557.9759. And he's there right now, ready to take your call, as is Bill Preston if you need heating, cooling, or Air quality equipment, I'd call Bill at 678 809 7959. Bringing comfort to America. I like that. One house, one home at a time. We should start a religious broadcast saying, Bringing comfort to America, one home at a time. You should be asking right now, Who the heck is John Adams and why should you listen to me? Well, there are a number of reasons. I've been around a long time and I'm still here. But um, perhaps the most important part is that I've never been arrested and I've never been bankrupt. And for somebody in the real estate business, that's pretty good for, you know, 35, 40 years. And uh, I did write a little book called The Landlord Survival Guide, which is in its 19th printing now, I think. And most importantly, I am an Eagle Scout, which means I am trustworthy. That means you could leave me overnight with your wife, your son, even your daughter, even overnight at a Motel 6 in the corner of Buford Highway in Claremont. Nothing would happen for I am trustworthy. And uh, we've got a lot to cover today. Oprah Winfrey has our quote for today. I will forever believe. That buying a home is a great investment. Why? Because you can't live in a stock certificate and you can't live in a mutual fund. And you can't live in a Bitcoin. She didn't say that. I I added that last. But I just I need somebody to send me an email, please, and explain Bitcoin. I don't invest in things I don't understand, and I don't understand Bitcoin. It was like this Robinhood deal yesterday. Was anybody else confused by that? I I don't understand it. GameStop was having trouble, so a bunch of hedge funds bet against it. So a bunch of individuals got together and bought it and ran up the price. Wait a minute, What what is it really worth? You know, we're going to talk about that today because real estate has a value. You can touch it. Apparently, GameStop has no value. I'm suggesting to you that a Bitcoin has no value, but that's because I don't understand it. But uh, let's forge ahead and, and see where we're going from here. Hmm... This has never happened before. There we go. Um, And I would remind you of our five-step buy and hold strategy that I still subscribe to to this day. First, you buy a home at a price below market value. That's what we do. We're in the business. you got to be able to estimate the value and buy it for less than that. Next, we renovate it or we repair it or enhance it to make it more attractive. That may be as simple as a coat of paint. It may be as extensive as replacing the foundation, although I don't recommend you do that. Number three, we rent the home to establish cash flow, to generate income. Uh, by the way, what income, this is, this is a quiz for you, what income comes from Bitcoin? Zero is the answer. Okay, Bitcoin does not pay you income and don't say, well, but you can mine for Bitcoin. I don't know what that means. All right. Number four, refinance. You refinance the home for cash to buy more property. Okay, that's called leverage. And then finally, we repeat the process. We find another home to buy and so on and so on. And you don't have to buy very many. In order to replace your current income, are you trading hours for dollars? I bet some of you are. So, we've got a lot to talk about this week. We're gonna talk about valuation, how to know what a property is worth. And I think this is among all the topics in real estate, perhaps the most important. And we're going to look at the process of valuing real property. We're going to discuss the three approaches to value. And then we're going to talk about which one is most appropriate. So um, this is going to be a lot of fun. Stay with us. By the way, if you know somebody else that ought to be on this program right now watching, you better call them. Just tell them to go to Real Estate Coffee Break and sign up. They'll, Or you can... What, whatever. That's the easiest way. Yeah, that's the easiest way. Next, we're going to talk about LastPass. And you may be saying, why do I need LastPass? Well, it's because LastPass just works, and it's free. And it is your password management software. And I'm, I, I'm a little nervous. About, I mean, you know, we found out, of course, that Russia... Um, had penetrated Trump's brain, and Putin had taken over Trump's cognitive functions and and had influenced him. That was the whole idea of the Mueller report, right? Well, if Donald Trump had been using LastPass, then when Putin laid eggs in his hair, then... (laughs) they would have drilled in, but they wouldn't have gotten there because the last pass would have stopped them. So, oh dear. dear. Margie told me not to discuss politics. So that's not politics. That was humor. Some of you didn't get the humor. All right. Finally, we're going to have the mortgage minute with Peter Burke, which I still haven't seen the slides for, but I trust. I trust Peter Burke, even though he's not an Eagle Scout. Somebody remind me to ask him if he was involved in scouting, and if not, why not? It's not too late, Peter. And then we're going to have our intermission. By the way, we're starting to get some questions from you guys, which I appreciate, because I like the interaction. I like it best when you raise your hand and say, I want to talk with John, and Margie will chat with you, and then I'll push a button Oh, they have to do Q&A first. So if you have a question or a comment, put it in the Q&A and say, I want to talk to John. Now, we won't have your picture, but we will hear your voice. So it'll be just like the old radio show. A lot of fun. Uh, In the second hour, um, we're going to be talking about landlord-tenant issues. I'm going to review. We had a lot of comment last week on how to beat the CDC eviction ban. I'm going to review that for you in, I hope, a little more cogent manner, okay? And the CARES Emergency Rental Assistance Program, or ERAP, as the federal government has chosen to designate it, um, we're going to look again. I was unable this week to find out any additional information about where to get this money. I'm sure it's disappearing, but I can't find any. Uh, And I'm asking you guys, if you are a landlord and your tenants are using this emergency rental assistance program, this is the 25 billion dollars, 706 million dollars for the state of Georgia alone. If you're getting some of that, Or if you know more about it, I'd love to hear from you during this program. Enter that in Q&A and tell Margie. And then finally, if we have time, I'm going to talk a little bit about 2021 and what you can look for. This may end up being pushed over into next week because we've got so much to talk about. So let's go ahead and get started. You know, this is the most important question in real estate. What's it worth? why didn't I put a question mark? I don't know why. Anyway, if you can answer that question, you can make a lot of money in this business. If you can't answer that question, you're, you shouldn't be in this business. Because that is the most important question to have that, that is asked. And it's because Obviously, beauty is in the eye of the beholder, but it's also in the eye of the appraiser and the banker. And if you're a seller, it's anytime you offer something for sale, if somebody comes and looks at it and says that's too much, essentially, you have bought it. See what I'm saying? You you could have negotiated with them and sold it at theoretically some lower price, but you decided, no, it's worth more to me to keep it. And so the, the value of a piece of real property is easier to determine because it is real, because we can touch it, because we can go there. What's hard about it is the market is not perfect. It isn't, we say in economics that real estate is an imperfect market. Why? Because the definition of, uh, by definition, no two pieces of real estate are exactly alike. They can't be, even if they are just picture-identical side-by-side. They aren't identical, in fact, because the location is different. Now, it may not be much different, but it's some different. And the reality is that for our purposes... Uh, and we're going to see an example in just a minute. But for our purposes, the real estate that we're going to try to compare to estimate value is likely to be very different. And so we have to take that into consideration. But, you know, what is a lump of gold worth? What, what is a um, What is a Bitcoin worth? It's worth what somebody's willing to pay for it. And in real estate, we have developed over the years three different ways to estimate the value of real property. The first is called the sales approach. You may have heard it called the sales comparison method or comparable sale method. It's all the same thing, sales approach. There is the cost approach. And then there's the income approach. And I want to cover all three of these because you need to be able to just spout these things off and you need to go through them in your mind and on paper. This is the single most important talent, I believe, that a real estate investor must have in order to be successful in this business. If you don't know what it's worth and you can't figure it out, you're in trouble from the get-go. So um, here are our three approaches to valuation of real property. Mm, Good coffee. So let's, let's take a little closer look at each one of these. First is the sales approach or the comparable sale method. This is an appraisal method that compares one property to comparables or other recently sold properties in the area with similar characteristics. That in a nutshell is what the sales approach is. Real estate agents and residential appraisers often use the sales comparison approach when evaluating properties to sell. And this method accounts for the effect that individual features have on the overall property value. So if you have two homes that appear to be identical and one has a swimming pool, well, swimming pool is a bad example. One has a full basement. The other is exactly the same house and it's a lot right next door, but it doesn't have a basement. Okay. Then what is somebody willing to pay extra for that basement? And the answer is probably fifteen or twenty thousand dollars, and maybe more. It's going to vary. I mean, I'd love to have a dry, big, full basement. I've got a basement, but it's not dry anyway. In other words, the total value of a property is the sum of the values of all of its features. And this is what real estate agents use to do with when they say I'm going to pull a CMA. They're just running on their computer, usually, this sales comparison method or the sales approach. The second is the cost approach. And this estimates the price a buyer should pay for a piece of property. It says that it's equal to the cost to build an equivalent building. In the cost approach, the property's value is equal to the cost of land okay and we can pretty easily determine you know what land costs because there are land sales and then you say well if this property burned to the ground what would it cost to build it back and now you start counting the bricks you start counting the electrical outlets you start counting the windows you count the roof you count all the hardwood floors the kitchen And so it's the cost of the land plus the total costs of new construction, which would be replacement, uh, less depreciation, which is to what extent is the property worn out now? Okay. And this can yield an accurate market value, particularly for a property that's new. Because it's easier to compare a newer property with, the cost today of replacing it. But if we're looking at an older house, for example, the house that I am broadcasting to you in right now is, was built in 1938. Well, wait a minute, they don't use the same kinds of brick. They don't, I have a granite foundation. Nobody does granite foundations anymore. This house has hardwood floors throughout. Nobody does that. This house has nine-foot ceilings. Um, most people don't do that. Some do, um, but the the components that build up, build this house, that constitute this house, simply cannot be found anymore. You can't get um, um, sash weight windows, and nobody wants them. What the windows you want are double pane or even triple pane, that give you the Uh, thermal factor. And so it makes it very difficult to estimate the value using the cost approach. You're not going to build back exactly the same house. If my house burned to the ground today and the insurance company said it's a total loss, Mr. Adams, here's a check. We have paid off your mortgage and here's what's left. I would not build exactly the same house back. One, I couldn't afford to and two, it wouldn't make any sense. I'd use modern methods. I'd use modern conveniences. Um, I'd build, for example, this, this house has no insulation in the walls or maybe a little, but not much. And obviously if I built a new house, I would put in a lot of insulation because that's something we're concerned about now. So The cost approach is probably not the right method for most homes that are more than a year old, okay? And then there's the income approach. Now this is the squirreliest of all because the income approach says, I don't care really about the real estate. I wanna know what what is the income stream that it can generate. And we see this most often in commercial real estate and least often in residential. Although I saw where, and I'm going to ask Peter about this, I saw where I think Fannie and Freddie are now requiring appraisers to calculate the income approach, even if they disregard it, uh, so that they're the, the uh, underwriters will have a chance to at least look at it and say, yes, it was at least taken into consideration. It attempts to calculate the current value of an asset based on the income the property should generate as time goes by. And it can be used to value any stream of payments. But it relies, listen to this, it relies on assumptions of future performance that are typically not applicable to residential properties. Now, I'm going to have some of y'all are going to call up and say, John, you've just discounted the income approach. What about the cap rate? Well, we're going to talk about that. But my point, here's, here it is. The cap rate simply represents the yield of a property over a one-year time horizon, assuming the property is purchased with cash and not with a loan. Got it? So let's say you go out this afternoon and buy a rental house that doesn't need any work. It's in very nice condition. It's a $200,000, three bedroom, two and a half bath, and you buy it for $200,000 cash. Who does that? Why would you do that? You wouldn't, but let's say you do. Okay. You pay $200,000 cash for a rental house, you rent it for I don't think you can get $2,000 a month for it. Maybe you can. I'm going to say $1,750 a month for 12 months. So your your gross income is $21,000. That's assuming you don't have any vacancy and no repairs and so forth. Then you subtract out your expenses. You've got property tax. You have insurance. You have vacancy. You have accounting costs. You have... Driving to and from the property, you have um, every expense, the water heater needed to be repaired, I, you know, everything. You pull that out and you end up with a net. That was $11,000. That's a lot. But all those taxes, you know, let's say you live in the city of Decatur, it would certainly be $11,000 in taxes. Um, you'd net $10,000. So you paid 200 you operated the rental house for a full year, and you end up with $10,000 in your pocket. And so the cap rate would be $10,000. That is your net operating income. And you divide that by $200,000 for a cap rate of 5%. And currently cap rates for commercial real estate are in the 5 to 6% range. Okay, And so they use this to, in a backwards way, estimate the value of commercial property. Their idea is if the net operating income is $10,000 and the cap rate is 5%, then the property must be worth 20 times what the net operating income is. And how do they know it's a 5% cap rate? That's because somebody tells them that's what the current cap rate is. And that's about what it is right now. I know this doesn't make sense if you are a residential real estate investor because who would pay $200,000 cash and not take advantage of the leverage? You remember that we talked about leverage? I said that real estate had five distinguishing characteristics. It generated income, depreciation and other tax benefits, equity buildup, appreciation with a non-capital A, and L is leverage. And leverage is how ordinary people become rich. So you would probably, buying that property, put down 15 or 20% if you have it and get a loan in the 3% range. Why not? Talk to Peter Burke. This is a brilliant strategy, Okay. So my point is that of the three approaches, which are comparables, or sales approach, the income approach, and the replacement approach, or the cost approach, Um, I think you should focus on the sales approach. And I want want us to look a little more closely. And here's a perfect example. This would be an ideal neighborhood to apply the sales approach. Why? Because every house is almost exactly the same. Look at the lots. Every lot is flat every lot is just about the same size. They are all the exact same distance from one another. They all were built the same time. Are you with me? All right, good. Now, check this out. Um, can you see my bouncing? Here, I'll turn on my little red. I can see it. Here. Okay. Can you all see that? Yes. yes. Um, we did some research and we found out that this house right here sold for $253,000. This house sold late last year for $255,000 and it's identical to this house and they were both brand new when they sold and this sold for two fifty-four. dollars and guess what? Now somebody wants to sell this house and it is exactly one year old. How much is it going to appraise for? You've got 253, 254 and 255. I guarantee you an appraiser's going to come right back at 255. And I mean unless the house is in poor condition is as long as it's in comparable condition to these other homes that sold, and we would by the way, if these three homes sold five years ago, then they're not really relevant anymore, are they? because the market changes constantly. So we are typically looking for comparable sales. Everybody agrees these three are comparable to this one, okay? But how old are they? We'd like them to be within the last 12 months. Now, there is not a law or a rule that says comparables are worthless if they're 12 months and a day old. But the older a comparable is, we like to say that we, it gives us less confidence as a comparable. So we might weight, uh, W-E-I-G-H-T, we might add significance to a comparable that was more recent, and subtract significance from a comparable that was older. Okay? So this is how it works. And what is the house with the question mark going to appraise for? It's going to appraise for either 254 or 5 or 255. You might even be able to squeeze 256 out of it, and say, well, the home's gone up in value in this area, six uh, percent last year. So that's half a percent a month, and a half a percent is a thousand dollars. I don't know if you get away with that or not, but. I certainly would try. But my point is, in reality, we never see a situation quite like this. This is too easy. I mean, this, this is sort of what appraisers dream for because they don't have to do any work. However, th- that is typically not the case. So where do we get our information on sales of comparable homes to pursue the um, sales approach value? Well, we can start with the tax assessment. Now, you need to understand that the tax records are not a reliable source of information. First, the information that they're using probably dates back to when the house was built. And people have a tendency to make improvements on their homes to make them more livable. For example, um if you have a two-bedroom, one-bath house uh, with a large attic, you might put in permanent stairs to the attic and add two bedrooms up there, and you might add a bath. So you, when the house was built, it was two-bedroom, one-bath, but now it's four-bedroom, two-bath. Is that going to impact the value? Well, of course it is. Well, whoever did that work did it themselves, and they forgot – to tell the tax assessor. So the tax assessor still thinks it's a two bedroom, one bath house. It's not like they have, and by the way, I think they are going to be using drones eventually to fly around your house and see if you've made any changes. But nonetheless, um, just always be cautious when dealing with the tax assessment or the records. Is it a starting place? Yes. Is it reliable? No. Okay. Next, Zillow solds. Now, I don't like Zillow. One, because they're trying to run me out of business. That, that's never pleasant. Um, two, because um, they're, for quite some time, their sold information and these stupid zestimates. Um, were very inaccurate, and some of them still are very inaccurate because most of them are actually based on tax records, and the tax records may not be accurate. So, but there's a reason that I like Zillow, and will always consult Zillow. It's because it contains for sale by owners. Realtors would have you believe that 98% of all home transactions eventually go through a realtor that simply is not true okay now there are a lot of transactions that simply do not go through a real estate professional and there's a variety of reasons for it and I'm not knocking real estate agents I am I is one okay um But agents, particularly um, traditional real estate agents, have this sort of myopic view of the market. And if it didn't happen uh, through the multiple listing service, then it didn't happen. And that's simply not true. And as an investor, you have to know if the home across the street sold for sale by owner. And you have to find out, was that an arm's length transaction? Sometimes it is. Sometimes it is a a husband deeding the property to his wife for $10 and love and affection. Well, is the house only worth $10,000? No, it's worth a lot more. I mean, you got all that love and affection in there. So I'm just saying, I start with Zillow. Next, um, I would call a real estate agent and say, can you do a CMA? A CMA more or less, is telling the multiple listing service computer, print out everything in this neighborhood that's sold in the last year, and I'll pick the three or four that are most similar in characteristics to the subject property. Subject property is the one that we're trying to estimate the value of. And they'll, they will do that. Real estate agents are not appraisers. And so they are not legally allowed to say, I appraise the value of this property at X number of dollars. Now they can say they estimate the value or they can say that I think a good selling price would be. Okay. And that's called a broker's price opinion. It is not the same as an appraisal because it does not go into the same depth. For crying out loud, they charge 500 bucks for appraisals these days. But if you can, if you've got a friend who is an appraiser, they have data that nobody else has. And it's because appraisers get brought in anytime there's a refinance. Now, that's completely under the radar of a real estate agent, of Zillow, of the tax assessor, but if you call up, let's say you've lived in the house 30 years and you've never sold it, and you pay off the loan, you call Peter Burke and say, I think I wanna refinance this house. He says, sure, they're gonna send an appraiser out. And that appraisal information is not available to the general public, but it is available to appraisers. And that's very valuable. Information, if you can get it. And then finally, there's a thing called N-A-R-R-P-R. And you ought to write this down because a lot of people don't know anything about it. Um, it this is from the National Association of Realtors. This is called the Realist, Realtors Property Resource or something like that. N-A-R-R-P-R. And you actually can go to narrpr.com and look at it, but you have to be a Realtor to get into it. Fortunately, there are lots of Realtors around, and you need to make friends with some. Okay? Okay? That's a smart way for an investor to get access. And this N-A-R-R-P-R, um My business partner, Hans Trupp is on um, the the line. Um, I can tell you that he and I agree this is a remarkably thorough tool. Well, it generates a report that's like 75 pages long. It's overkill, but it tends to be very good, and it allows you to individualize every step of the way. And it's the best I've ever seen. So N-A-R-R-P-R dot com. Don't be surprised if your friend who's a realtor has never heard of it. Because most of the realtors I talk to have never heard of it. Because they're using the one at FMLS or Georgia MLS, which in my opinion is not as thorough as N-A-R-R-P-R. And by the way, it doesn't cost anything. But it takes about 10 minutes by the way and it's proprietary but i'm telling you it's worth looking at so so much for that so what are our key takeaways on valuation a sales comparison approach makes the most sense on residential real estate it compares one property to similar properties that have recently sold in the area it's the backbone for the comparative market analysis and the things that you should be looking at are location, recently sold properties, features, age, condition, and average price per square foot. And that last one should be your key takeaway because appraisers, and they will tell you that instead they, they say, oh, we have a magic wand that we wave and it gives us the value. What they rely on more heavily than anything else is price per square foot. Now, they, they might deny that, but I'm just telling you that's what the case is. So how can you help your appraiser? My goodness, time's getting away from me. Well, do the appraisal for him. Now, I know some of you are saying I, they won't let me talk to the appraiser. Yes, they will. I'll tell you how, take the lockbox off. Don't leave a key for the appraiser. Tell the appraiser, you tell the lender, only you can get the appraiser into the house. There's no lockbox, there's no keys, and they can't slide in a window, which is sort of what they like to do sometimes. So if you do the appraisal for him and hand it to him and say, I don't know what the house is worth, Um, this is what we thought it might be worth, but I'm interested to hear what you have to say. That's not a challenge to him, but make sure that your appraisal or your market assessment, if you will, is reasonable. Because if it's not reasonable, he's just going to throw it out. Make sure it has the best comps so he's not tempted to use bad comps. Because I've seen appraisers just get nervous and pull in a bad comp to lower the price because it, um, it lowers their liability. Make sure that appraiser gets it. If you have to, find out their name and ship it to them overnight. Okay? And if his appraisal comes in low, then great. You can just tear it up and order another one. Now, that's 500 bucks down the drain. But how often can you do that? We well, can do it as often as you want. And pretty soon you're shopping appraisals. But if you do that two times in a row and the appraisers keep coming in low, that should tell you something. That means the property isn't worth what you think it's worth. And you made a mistake. And making mistakes in valuation of property is never a good idea. And, but you can do that as many times as you want. At $500 a pop, it uh, gets old real quick. That's why you should be an expert in valuation. Okay, eventually you're going to get the idea. Um, I'm going to bring on my friend Peter Burke. Um, We talked about the five key characteristics of real estate and why leverage is so important and how that completely screws up the cap rate. I continue to believe you can retire comfortably on as few as 10 rental units. So I'm going to see if uh, Peter can come on now and I'm going to unshare my screen. He'll so, all right, he'll be there in just a minute. Well, in that case, I'm just going to keep on up. Oh, don't need to, because it looks to me like Dr. Peter Burke is in the hospital. Um, I'm going to Oh, everybody. Well, hi, Peter. How are you? I'm doing great. I'm doing great. Thank you. That's super. And, and, uh, I forgot, you know, when I'm dealing with Peter and, uh, video, he's a good guest, but the, I can't think of enough things to tell him not to do. Peter don't wear a checkered shirt on video. This is my favorite checkered shirt, John. I, you can wear it anytime, but you can't wear it on video. Okay. Because it, hold on. It, hold on.
2: No checkered shirt. <laughs>
1: Thank you. Keep going. See, no, no, that's it. That's it. I, I, You might want to get an American flag for the background if you are a patriot. Absolutely. Some
2: one of your one of your uh, the listeners out here. Ask me about an Amer-
1: why you have that American flag. It is to honor those who have served our country. Um, I did not. I was, um, I actually had a draft number when 1976 rolled around. Is that mm-hmm. 75? I had a draft number because I was graduating from Emory and they'd already had the lottery. And I was about midway up the lottery, and then they called off the draft. That's when the, the draft was ended, and they moved to a completely volunteer army. And so I did not serve. And uh, in retrospect, that might have been something I should have done on my own, but I wanted to start buying houses, so I did. Stop with, uh, I understand. But I, understand. I have tremendous respect for the men and women who um, serve this country and continue to do so as well as their families because those also serve who sit and wait. My mother always said that because when my dad was off in England during World War II, she said she just worried herself almost to death. Mm -hmm. And uh, so there was service in that as well. But that's why... And um, um, so so much for that. Tell me no, no about, we what are we talking about today, Peter? What do we got? Well, we are talking about uh,
2: income and loan qualifying on a mortgage application. But I want to reinforce something you said because you told me this a long time ago. And I give this advice out. Remove the lockbox. Yep. If you are a seller or a real estate agent remove that lockbox and meet the appraiser and do the work for him and that is great advice especially when you've got a unique property with a unique characteristic and you're trying to get maximum value for that property
1: and and it's interesting you mentioned that because during the valuation discussion and that valuation discussion was from teaching that you'll remember um, um, Scott Murphy right. used, used to do at the Institute. Um, he would stress that, for example, the replacement approach was um, – I'm sorry, not the replacement, the cost – well, that is the replacement approach, yeah, cost approach – is most valuable on unique structures, for example – if you have, if you're in the middle of Druid Hills, and you have a, a cathedral or you have a church, where are you going to find comparables for a church? Correct. There, that one they don't sell very often. Two, they're not alike, and three, they're not typically not real close together. Yes. So, so you mentioned a unique feature. Um, that's one area that you might want to consider looking at the replacement approach, but. Right,
2: but if, you've, if you're if you in an area, and it isn't so common today, but it was in Atlanta a few years ago where values were starting to come back up and there were a lot of sales of non-updated and updated homes and you wanted to make sure yours was considered updated, you really had to uh, help that appraiser out because he or she may not live in that neighborhood.
1: Well, and there's a real good chance. I I don't mind sharing with you. As you know, I live in Decatur. We are an integrated community, and this was years ago. Um, But we were assigned an appraiser from somewhere, but he'd never been to Decatur, and he made it clear to me that uh, because it was an integrated community, he was going to have to – I was stunned when he said that. Um, that he was going to have to lower the value. I, I, that is pretty bad. Yeah. And I'm hoping that we have moved beyond that. I think largely, appraisers today are not. Um, um, well, let's just say. Yes. Uh, whatever. Um, but the the um, valuation. Would you agree with me that of all the skills? that a real estate investor needs to be good at, valuation is near the top of the list. Yeah,
2: you can fix everything but a bad purchase price.
1: Well, and you can fix everything but a bad location. Yeah, true. And that's part of the valuation process. So have you got some slides we need to talk about? I do, I will uh, present right here, one slide. Very good. Slow load. That's all right. We, There are only about 400 people on. Don't, don't feel bad about it. Okay. So,
2: uh, important topic. Uh, income quali- income on a, on a loan application. Have you shared it, your screen, Peter? Because we're not
1: seeing it. I show that I'm sharing it. Hold on. Hold on. You have to click the go down The bottom of your screen, and there should be a share screen there. Ah, I apologize, everybody. That's okay.
2: Bear with me. Let me pull this up. Bear with me here. Where's a musical interlude? I
1: did. While you're pulling that up, I'm going to. We have an interesting comment from Nils. Uh, who joins us by Q and A, and I'm going to read it. He says, and this is brilliant. I always get the appraiser's email address. Then I email him my comps from Georgia MLS and Q Public, which I assume is another resource, because sometimes the comps that the appraiser pulls are not a comprehensive list. Absolutely, and that's what Peter said when the appraiser is not familiar with the area. Then when I see him in person, I verbally say, uh, get the number as high as you can to help me out. I'm not sure I would say that, but, you know, it doesn't hurt anything. I prefer to say, hey, I don't know what it's worth. Uh, Here are some numbers that a friend, a real estate professional gave to me as comparables, but I'll be interested to see your—I don't want the appraiser to feel like I'm challenging him.
2: You know, um, another point that, um, not to go back to appraisals, but, you know, pictures uh, speak volumes and everyone looks at those photos in an appraisal um, uh, for underwriting purposes and pretty pictures go a long way. And so great curb appeal is critical.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. I have always said for example, one of the things we always do, if we buy an, an uglier, older house where the bushes are growing above the gutter, we'll pull all of those out and put in a starter set of bushes uh, just because it looks more like new construction and people like it. And right. I think it makes it sharper looking from the street.
2: So Yeah, mulch goes a long way.
1: Boy, you're not kidding. Story yeah. of my life. Uh, so... Um, I still don't see any slide, but you're welcome just to share with us.
2: Excellent. Well, I, I, am trying to do it, but, um, let's just go through it. So what's the sources of income that we use for qual? you can use for qualifying for a mortgage loan. And the key words are any verifiable, stable, and reoccurring sources of income. And that's wages from your job, pensions, social security, dividends, interest, child support, alimony. And of course, for a real estate investor, any net rental income are eligible. Verifiable, stable and reoccurring are the key. And let's define what that means. And it's real simple, verifiable income, means it shows up on a tax return and you can see it. Well, stable yes. and reoccurring because yes. that's the keys to analyzing income. Verifiable, it's on your tax return. Stable means there aren't big swings with it from year to year. You, a reasonable person can extract what the average income is. And then reoccurring, means there's a history of you receiving it in the past, and it's anticipated you'll continue to receive it in the future. And a great example of that is alimony and child support. Okay. Um, there's documents out there that dictate how long you've received it and how long you expect to receive it in the future. And if it works, then we can use it for qualifying you to obtain a mortgage loan.
1: Very good. What about um, a trust fund or or a stream of payments? Uh, have you been injured in an accident? Get the money you deserve and you settle and get $1,000 a month for 20 years on this settlement. You, you, John, that's similar to
2: how you would describe an annuity. And in fact, you that may be what you may be receiving is annuity income. And that's perfectly eligible if it can be verified and it's anticipated to reoccur into the future for a period of time. Absolutely.
1: Okay. All right. Very interesting. You, and,
2: and it's interesting when you ask someone what's your income and they don't consider, some some people don't consider Social Security income, but it is your income. Sure and you're, is. And sure we is. use that income for qualifying.
1: Margie, you um, said somebody had a question for Peter. Yeah, it's on the QA. Ah, here we go. This is Bob. Uh, Bob, welcome to the program. He says, I have 12 rental houses with mortgages on 10 of them. I find it nearly impossible to get a mortgage for buying another house since that would put me over 10. Is there a source? I happen to know the answer to this question. Is there a source to get a purchase mortgage at competitive rates if I have 10 plus houses? And Peter, I met with, guess who this week? Uh, Jeff. Jeff. Excellent. At Simply Land. And uh, they are, I hope, listening right now because this will show why they should send me money. Uh, The let me ask this. There is a four-slash-ten wide, widely considered rule in Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac mortgages for non-owner occupied. The first four seem to be relatively easy to get. The, the next six, they become more and more difficult and the reserves that you have to have um, to support ten of those mortgages and get qualified for another one would be remarkable. Is that still in effect? It all depends. And, and how's
2: that for an answer? Uh, it's definitive. Um, uh, the the don't get conf- people sometimes get confused and they exchange the word homes for mortgages. It's the number of mortgages, not the number of homes, where it can it can run into an issue. And right. generally, um, obtaining that 10th mortgage for a rental property or, or that 11th can be a challenge. Um, by the way, the, the home you live in is always considered safe harbor. So um, you could have 11 mortgages because you're always in, eligible for, as long as you qualify, for the home you live in to get a loan. But it's the number of mortgages and four versus ten. There's there there's a number of things that come into play, and it's it's best just to look at it on a case by case basis.
1: Well, and and the the other thing is, you and I know that there are private sources, non Fannie, uh, non GSE. Um, that will make 15-, 20-, 30-year fixed-rate mortgages at surprisingly competitive prices. Now, they're not going to be as good as a government-backed mortgage because they're not backed by the government. But uh, there are lenders out there, and we will be, I hope, having one as a sponsor on this program very soon. And they're not competing with you, Peter, because you don't have that. That's not your cup of tea. No,
2: no. They're they're great for short-term financing, uh, for rehab purchase, uh, for properties that you don't anticipate to keep, or those that you need money to fix
1: up. And and correct me if I'm wrong, the solution to the question that was asked earlier, I think um, Bob's question is, Simply move in to the next house you want to buy. Always a
2: great piece of advice.
1: Yes, and stay there one year. Don't say you're going to live there. Don't put a cot in and say, "Well, I put a cot there and I slept there one night." Um, You actually have to move in, occupy it, and I, I, I mean, Margie, as a CPA is always talking about um, the importance of considering all the evidence uh, when looking at any type of tax case. But uh, in this case, if you said you were going to occupy a property as your principal residence, and there was some question about it, you're talking about committing fraud against an agency that is um, a government-sponsored enterprise. You are committing fraud against the United States, and this is not something to play around with, right? Uh, That's
2: absolutely correct, and taking it one step further, um, have your driver's license uh, show that a new home address too.
1: My sense is if you did drive, if you one, physically live there, two, had your driver's license changed, and three, had your income taxes changed, to that address, correct. So that so that you're receiving from the Internal Revenue Service your your communications and documents, uh, that would be pretty strong evidence. Now, Margie's got a list of 52 other things from moving your church membership to to <laughs> meeting the welcome wagon. But uh, in any case, all right, Peter. Very interesting. If people want to get hold of you, how can they reach you? Oh,
2: John, you know, I'm going to flip this off because I think I'm, uh, my, my phone number, my easy to read phone number, that uh,
1: 678-557-9759. Well, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to share my screen because I have your easy to number that I can put on the screen. If I just scroll down a little bit over here, that's where I am. There. Oh, my. Now, the, you probably haven't seen this, Peter. The, there's your number, the easy-to-remember number. And what I did was I picked out a an acronym, a yeah, to help people remember it. And it's O-S-U-J-L-R-W-S-K-Y. So wow. So if, if you go dial that... Peter will answer well you know
2: I attended Ohio State University and 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 am a graduate
1: thereof thank you the second part JLR stands for John loves rent and the third is what you and I enjoy together when we meet socially yes whiskey whiskey (laughs) O S U J L R W S K Y. Folks, this is why you should call Peter. He's just a genius at things that most people don't even understand. I thought for almost a year, Peter, I thought, what an idiot to have a phone number that nobody could remember. But little did you know. There's method in your madness. Peter, as always, we appreciate your thank you, everybody. And we'll talk to you again soon. So what I'm going to do at this point is, first I'm going to ditch Peter. Margie, get rid of him and, pardon? I will. Okay. And I'm going to, we're going to take a short intermission. And when we come back, we're going to talk how to beat the CDC eviction ban. And here we go. All right, here we go. Margie said that my forehead was way too bright. So I have turned down the lights. Is that better? Yeah. Is that too bright? That's too bright. You could turn on the overhead, probably. Well, no, I don't. I don't know. This is fine. Um, All right, here is. Our topic and I'm going to run through this and then um, I want to bring Ian Robbins in and um, sort of get his thoughts on this because he is a fellow landlord and um, is a moderator or director or president or whatever it is of the landlord subgroup at Georgia Real Estate Investors and I'm hoping that he has been able to dig up some more information uh, than I have. But uh, we are all familiar with the CDC agency order, which um, declared a moratorium on some evictions. And that has been widely used by lots of tenants to just stop paying rent altogether. By the way, I don't know how many of you saw um, my friend Steve Jordan appeared on Fox Five. Um, Steve, that's my gig. I don't. You you're not supposed to be on Fox Five. Go to another TV station, please. But um, he appeared, and generally, um, Steve Jordan's advice was masterful, as it's Almost always is, but he made the terrible mistake of saying that the first thing he did was he wrote to all of his tenants and said, I'm um, uh, I'm not going to collect any rent for March. What? <laughs> what? <laughs> you are way too nice to be in this business. Well, he can afford to be because he's a very wealthy man. I can too, but I'm not going to. I it's the principle of the thing. So anyway, I had to get a shot in at Steve Jordan there. Steve, thank you. Um, So let's forge ahead on our CDC ban here with the CDC agency order in place. Can I evict a tenant for non-payment of rent? The answer is yes. Unless they jump through the hoops. Now, What happened historically, we don't need to spend a lot of time on, but when the pandemic began, the courts completely shut down. And they sort of liked that, especially the magistrate court said, we are not going to deal with landlord-tenant. And that went on seemingly forever. And it didn't, there was no CDC agency order at that point there had been some sort of vague moratorium um, under the CARES Act for federally insured properties or something, a mortgages, I don't know. But the courts are open now. And as far as I know, they're open in 159 counties in Georgia and throughout the rest of the United States as well. So uh, they have to jump through hoops now to invoke the CDC agency order. And uh, here's what those hoops are. First, they have to have exhausted their best efforts to get help. That is impossible. That right there is your ticket to getting them into court. Because how can they prove? It's like you prove to me that there are not flying elephants. Well, there may be one somewhere. I can't prove that there's not. I think it's unlikely, but... I can't prove it. So I can get you into court and say, prove to me that you have utilized or applied to every conceivable rent relief agency or, or, or program out there. It's just not possible. Next, you have they have to expect to earn less than $99,000 in 2021. That's not gonna be a problem. And expecting, anyway, is beside the point. I mean, you know, I don't know what I'm going to mean. Unable to pay rent due to substantial loss of household income or job loss. In other words, they're probably going to need to be on unemployment or be able to prove that they've had their hours cut back or somehow they have, this is not designed for people who are self-employed. Now, they say that it can be done, but, uh, you know, it's harder for them to prove if they're self-employed, and they have to say that, get this, they have made their best effort to make any payment whatsoever. That also is impossible. What do you mean? You can't pay a dollar? You can't pay 50% of the rent? You can't pay what you're paying on your car? you're paying on your motorcycle i see you had the boat put in storage um you went on vacation you sent me a card from from uh london saying what a wonderful vacation you were having yeah well i don't think you've made your best effort but that's a point of contention and then the this is sort of an interesting the one they have to state that the eviction will cause them to become homeless or cause them to enter a shared living arrangement, which would be like a dormitory. And this is one of the keys to our strategy that we're going to see a little bit later. But... um You know, maybe that's the case. Maybe it's not the case. Do they have relatives that live here, and can they live with their relatives? Or do they have a friend or somebody else they can live with? Or are you willing to offer them alternative living that is not in a shared living environment? Okay, maybe you have a much lower cost rental that they could move to. I don't know if you'd want to do that. And then the last but not least is they have to have filed the mandated declaration, the CDC agency order declaration. Now, my understanding is the declaration was supposed to have been um, signed and notarized uh, so that they were making a statement of fact. And their signature was being notarized. Somebody at the last second said, oh, that wouldn't be fair because I can't find a notary. So they let them just sign it under, quote, penalty of perjury, end quote. Um, the problem with that is these tenants, they'll sign anything if they don't have to pay the rent. I mean, they're just, there are a lot of people who really are not concerned about telling a fib if it saves them a $1,000 a month. And... Um, as a result, there are a lot of people out there that owe a lot of money. So how do we beat this? Well, we've received recent guidance from the CDC, from Health and Human Services, and from the Department of Justice. Now, this is important because CDC has, they don't know anything about landlord-tenant. What the heck does CDC know? They're a bunch of um, doctors that, um, who are, you know, they're eggheads. I mean, they're walking around with thick glasses and carrying books under each arm. These people are not business people. And so they were ordered to come up with this eviction ban. Um, CDC works for the Department of Health and Human Services, and Health and Human Services also knows nothing. These are also doctors. These are They're obviously interested in health, and I understand that. But guess who got involved? The Department of Justice. These are lawyers. And lawyers said, look, um, there's more to this ban than you guys just saying people don't have to pay the rent. We can't let that be the case. And so we now have this guidance that you can get right now by going to <coughs> Margie. Where would they go? RealEstateCoffeeBreak.com/resources. RealEstateCoffeeBreak.com and click on resources. Go to RealEstateCoffeeBreak.com, click on resources, and you're going to see the CDC, HHS, DOJ guidance. And it's about eight pages. You'll need to read the whole thing. But I'm going to show you the most important parts in just a second. And by the way, if you want this replay, it will be offered to you later today. So watch your email inbox. Now, if you serve these people with a summons, if they get served... if you file a dispossessory warrant and they are served to summons, the likelihood of them following all the proper procedures, meeting all of the requirements of the court, and appearing in the right place at the right time with a compelling defense is extremely low. That's just been my experience. It's possible they'll end up with a A lawyer from Legal Aid, but it's rare that those Legal Aid pro bono lawyers are going to go to court with them. They'll tell them what to do, but half of them just aren't going to do it. Okay? So that works in your favor because the courts are now open. You can, and with this um, guidance from DOJ, you can file a dispossessory warrant. And start the process. What I'm saying is if you start the process, there's a pretty good chance you're going to win. And you have no downside in doing so other than um, the $105 you pay to get the uh, warrant served. You have no downside because you challenge the truthfulness of their declaration in good faith under DOJ guidance. And I would not walk into that courtroom, nor would I walk into uh, the clerk's office without that DOJ guidance with me, which you can get at realestatecoffeebreak.com by clicking resources. Okay, because you're going to want to highlight some things. I'm going to talk about them in just a second. Finally, eviction judges, these magistrates, Love in court mediation, and you're going to be requesting in court mediation. Here's how we do it. First, and here's some strategies for getting these people out of your house. And Steve Jordan, I love you, but when you suggested paying two or $3,000 to get somebody out, I'm sorry. I'm not going to do that. You can call it cash for keys, I call it insanity. You owe me a drink for having said that on television. You've besmirched the image of investors everywhere. Well, good grief, $3,000 cash for keys. For $3,000, I could hire somebody to go over there and break their kneecaps. Um, I would not, I was just kidding. That was a joke. People don't understand my jokes sometimes. Okay, first, if their lease expires, just don't renew it. I don't care if they're under a declaration or not. They have to get out. They cannot stay if the lease has expired. So make sure you know when your leases are going to expire, especially the ones that have invoked their declaration. And for those that have not, before I renewed the lease, and by the way, you need to get a better lease and start using it, and I'm about to tell you where. Uh... Before you do that, you need to—before you renew their lease, um, you need to determine that they will—it's very unlikely that they will be filing a declaration. Okay? How? Well, put them on—you can put them, if you think they're liable to file a declaration, put them on a written month-to-month lease with 30 days notice. That way, you can't lose more than one month's rent because at the end of 30 days— the lease expires. Just don't renew it. And that's the only circumstance under which I would rent to somebody that um, had filed a declaration in the past but promised they wouldn't do it again. You can renew with a very high security deposit. This is one of the strategies that Ian Robbins employs very successfully is he gets a security deposit of two three, sometimes even four months' rent. And it's because people have it. Or they'll get it if they want to live in your property. If you're holding $5,000 in security deposit, I don't really care if you don't pay the rent one or two months. Okay? I've got a security deposit, a big one. Four, go ahead with the... If the person files, go ahead with the normal demand notice... Then file a dispossessory warrant, file the paperwork, and hire a process server. We're going to get to process server. But the magistrate courts are open, they are accepting dispossessory warrants for reasons other than non payment. That's what the CDC order says, and it is highlighted in the DOJ guidance. So if you get to, there are clerks of, of court that are simply saying, we're not taking any dispossessories at this time. Well, they don't realize that they are required to take dispossessories at this time. And remember, you're dealing with a very low level person. This is probably somebody working part-time. The It's an assistant clerk. It's probably the clerk's Uh, 10-year-old daughter who's just told to say we're not taking dispossess They can't even say dispossessory. Um, So get to somebody in authority and tell them that you're filing for reasons other than non-payment. And you state the amount that's owed, ask for possession and a judgment for past due rent fees and costs, and state that the reason that you are seeking possession and a judgment is that the tenant has made a false declaration. Now the Department of Justice says you have a right to do this. And this is from the guidance from the Department of Justice FAQ. I'm gonna show you exactly what it says. Yes, you may still be evicted for reasons other than not paying full rent or making a full housing payment. What would some, some examples be? The order does not prevent you from being evicted for. And by the way, this is straight from that DOJ guidance. Are they engaging in any criminal activity while on the premises? Huh, okay. Are they threatening the health or safety of other residents or even neighbors? okay. Are they damaging or posing an immediate and significant risk of damage to the property? If so, you can evict them. Are they violating any applicable building code, health ordinance, or similar regulation relating to health and safety? Or are they violating any other contractual obligation of the tenant's lease other than the timely payment of rent? Okay. And I have never found a tenant that wasn't violating some contractual obligation. Those of you that use my famous killer lease realize it is full of contractual obligations that there there's so many obligations that they've agreed to, they're going to be violating one of them, I'm sure. So, I'm just telling you there are ways to do this. So, this again is straight from the guidance from the Department of Justice frequently asked questions, and here's what it says. What can a landlord do if a tenant has declared that they are a covered person under the CDC order, but the landlord does not believe the tenant actually qualifies? And here's their answer, and I quote, The CDC order does not preclude a landlord from challenging the truthfulness of a tenant's declaration in any state or municipal court. The protections of the order apply to the tenant until the court decides the issue as long as the order remains in effect. So what that means is, you. and and this is, I think it's page six, I'm not sure, but if I were you, I would take the entire 10-page FAQ, highlight this question and answer, and attach it to your um, dispossessory uh, warrant and say, this is the basis under which I'm filing. Um, I, I believe that they don't qualify. And you're doing this in good faith under guidance from the Department of Justice. Um, so what if an individual acts in bad faith when completing and submitting the declaration? Again, this is straight from that guidance. Anyone, and this is a quote, anyone who falsely claims to be a covered person under this order by attesting to any material information which they do not believe to be true may be subject to criminal penalties. Blah, blah, blah. Perjury. Who cares? Yeah, Fat chance. But How does the federal government intend to enforce this order? Uh, The Department of Justice prosecutes violations of this order. Now, I'm not so naive, folks, as to think that um, the FBI is going to investigate somebody who files a CDC declaration. But you have every right to take them to court and say, I don't believe they have exhausted every possibility of paying me. I don't believe they have exhausted every possibility of um, of uh, seeking help and here is a list of 101 relief agencies and, uh, and Your Honor I'd like you to um, ask the defendant to show that they have contacted every one of these by U.S. mail and they've been turned down uh, they're not going to do it. They won't have it. And I'm just telling you that you're allowed to do this under, at least this is my interpretation. Remember, I'm not an attorney. I'm not giving you legal advice. You should be discussing this with your attorney. So my tenant hasn't paid the rent. They get a demand notice from me. And then they say, uh, John, I or Mr. Adams, I, I heard there was this CDC order thing. What is that all about? You know what my answer is going to be? I don't have any idea what you're talking about. You have no obligation to give them information or any forms whatsoever. I know some of you want to be do-gooders, and you do that. That's fine. I'm not going to help. I'm not going to help slip my own throat. It's easy enough already. Okay? Number two, don't say anything about the CDC order. Don't say that you know how to beat it. Don't say that that uh, it uh, – just say nothing. Say, I don't know anything about any CDC thing. Say This has to do with rent. CDC has to do with vaccines. At least they should. And if they file a declaration, I do recommend you call your lawyer – for advice. And if you need a recommendation on a lawyer, I'll give you one. Part of the problem, we had somebody this past week call and ask for a lawyer recommendation. And it was on an abandonment issue. And I gave him two names and the two lawyers gave him different advice. Well, guess what? Folks, you can't expect a lawyer to give you free legal advice. They're not going to and so, in order to protect themselves, they're just going to say, um, sure or no, or I, they're, they're not going to spend a lot of time researching uh, for you if you're not paying them. They expect to get paid. I know that flies against everything that you believe in, but um, sometimes you just have to do it. You've um, got one hand raised and Ian's ready whenever you are. Okay. And, and then you go ahead and file a dispossessory warrant charging untruthfulness and ask for uh, a writ and a judge or writ of possession and a uh, dollar judgment for past due rent and all your expenses. And what that does is it gets you into court. Now why should you, a process server does the same thing as the marshal or the sheriff does, depending on what county, you're in. Most metro counties use marshals. Some uh, more, uh, most of the rural counties use the sheriff. But if they are delivering the summons, all you're going to get is tack and mail. And that's just where they basically tape a notice on the front door and leave. Personal service, on the other hand, is where they hand it to somebody. And then they write down that I gave it to the person that was supposed to get it. And personal service is hard to get because the sheriff doesn't care. The marshals, they're uh, overworked and underpaid. Their life is on the line. I don't blame them. I wouldn't go knocking on doors if I didn't have to. I mean, who knows what can happen? So um, how do you get personal service? Hire a process server for the county where the property is located, okay? Um, First, that's going to catch their attention. that somebody came to their door and said, this is a warrant and I'm serving it on you. Next, you meet with the tenant and see if they'll sign a consent agreement. And if you don't know what that is, you need to buy the landlord survival guide and you need to talk with your attorney. If they fail to appear in court, you get a writ of possession and a dollar judgment automatically. And it only costs you $150 or so to get personal service. Now, what is? how do you find a process server? Just Google the county name and the words process server and call them up and say, I need you to tell me how much you charge for personal service of a dispossessory warrant. Okay. And here's the way it works. Get this. If I get personal service, and by the way, you can't do it yourself. It has to be either the marshal or a process server because they're approved by the court. If they don't answer, you win. They have seven days to answer, but a lot of times they just don't answer. If they answer, you still win unless they appear at the proper time. Okay, so... Right off, you've got two hurdles for them, and then if they appear, uh, stand up and approach the court and, and say, Your Honor, I don't believe that they have used their best efforts to obtain all available government assistance for rent or housing. In fact, I have a list here of 101 relief agencies that I believe they may qualify for, and I would like to see evidence that they have applied to all of them. Then the judge is going to say, well, I don't know what to do. Say, would it be possible, Your Honor, for us to have mediation? And the judge is just going to smile from ear to ear and say, yes, we have a mediator in the back of the room right now. Y'all go meet and see if you can't work something out. And just pull out your consent decree and tell the mediator you are willing to let them stay. If they will sign a consent decree and if the court will accept it. And it lets them stay. It puts them on a repayment plan of some sort. It lifts, it gives them some relief, typically of late fees, and requires them to begin paying going forward. Guess what? They're not going to. But As soon as they fail to follow the orders of the court in the consent decree, then you can get a writ of possession. I'm going to use a legal term now, instanter, which means instantly. You don't have to go back through the dispossessory process. You have beat the CDC court order, and you can have them set out on the street in seven days. Now that's the way it works. And if anybody has questions, send me an email. But my advice is to get them into magistrate's court as soon as possible because at almost every turn, you have the advantage. Certainly your attorney has the advantage. If you wanna do it yourself and you're confident enough, I think you can have the advantage. Takes a lot of time. Gotta be very patient, okay? But get them into court. Uh, like I said, you can retire comfortably on as few as 10 rental units. By the way, the Landlord Survival Guide is out, and it has a completely new and improved killer lease that takes into account the pandemic, it takes into account changes in the court, it takes into account changes in the law, and we're continuing to change it on an almost weekly basis. So if you're dealing, if you have a landlord survival guide that's two years old, you don't have the most recent one. I don't recommend, it's like filing your income tax using a 1040 from three years ago. It doesn't make any sense. I mean, you can do it. It's just that the IRS is going to haul you in. And I'm just, I'm trying to tell you for a small investment, you get a lot of protection. Don't make costly legal mistakes. Okay. So uh, I'm gonna bring Ian in if I can. Margie, would you help me? Yes, I'll do it. And would you get the administrator off of my screen? I'll try. And I may get some another cup of coffee. Stolz wants to talk. Um I will but he won't. He didn't give me a Q and A. Oh. Well he just raised his hand. I tell people they have to do Q&A. if you have to um Yeah <laughs> Ken Jordan is Ken Jordan is Steve's brother, more or less. I think it's brother by a different mother, maybe. And, oh, there's Ian Robbins. How are you, sir? Great and job. uh we seem to be zoomed in on your chair pad. Oh, hold on. We are going to <laughs> change that. Anyway, Ken Jordan says, says uh, Steve's brother, Ken, ain't doing that. I know you ain't doing that because just declaring the month of March rent abandoned? Oh, my goodness. Uh, Ian, Would you did you do that in March?
0: I did not do that in March, John. I collected all my rent, and I want to just thank you for your advice and what you just went over, if you
1: wouldn't mind, can I add just a couple of comments? I would love that that. because um, I had hoped that I had a very busy week and a closing that nearly fell apart and we were able to pull it together, but I ended up just crazy this past week. And I had intended to call you, but I'd love to get your thoughts on the, the, um, how to beat the CDC agency order. Go ahead, please. Well, I
0: think, John, what you described as a pattern, is a structure, is a, a step-by-step of what to do. But I think a lot of landlords, including myself, psychologically, we have to do it. We have to actually go through these steps and, and not worry about what the media is saying. I mean, everybody's wearing masks. Obviously, CDC is is an important issue right now. But I want to sincerely tell you that your advice and what you're talking about happened to me this week, where, quote, someone that is going to be leaving a house said to me, it's on the media every day. I hear it on the TV every day. Ian, what do you know about this CDC uh, situation as it relates to rent. And I just said, I don't know. And we moved on to another subject. And even if they do something, they really are not gonna, you've you've given us so many good things. They have to one, do it, and two, you've given a defense. And I think the psychology on it is important. Because um, to me, there's a very strong, um, very, very strong for a lot of people. Um, I even came up with another uh, twist to it because now when I start looking for a new tenant, one of the other reasons I'll be able to talk about a higher security deposit is say, listen, you might come up with this CDC ban and I'm, I'm going to keep you in longer. So I need some more money up front. It gives me like another it. reason to collect more money. I like it. And the. When- uh-
1: yeah, it, it's, it's interesting to me. The media, you're right, is beating us all over the head with this pandemic, and I think it's because they don't have anything to talk about anymore. It only takes a couple of minutes to for them to worship the current administration. So when that worship service is over, that's the first three minutes of network news, then they've got to fill something for the next 27 minutes. So they might as well talk about how awful the pandemic is because of the past administration. And that's good for 27 minutes. And one way of doing that is to focus on how terrible the pandemic is and how it has ruined America um, um, as a result of Russian interference in our election, which we now no, has been proved beyond a question beyond a shadow of a doubt i mean it's it's proved anyway so but you think this theoretically could work right yes i certainly agree good yes. good have uh ian let me just ask you have you ever used a process server
0: i have not but if i felt that the it, it weren't served i would step back and make sure it gets done because of the fact that what you're saying is right. That person will work a little harder to make sure they're in front of them and make sure that they get the paperwork necessary.
1: Well, the other thing about a process server is they will do what you tell them to do and pay them to do. So if you know that the guy works at um, uh, the Kroger store around the corner, because you've seen him there, um and you get some idea of when he's going to be there, you can tell the process server go to Kroger. Serve him Sorry. right there. There's no uh there, there's no ban on personal service as long as it's in the county where the property is located. Um I didn't and, know that,
0: John. I, I visualized it was at the house. So thank you. I No, it, I mean it could it,
1: it it certainly is likely to be at the house, but you and I have also talked about Ian when a house is abandoned or may be abandoned, which is a whole other topic we need to get to. So, anyway, okay. um, so I let's was, for I was let's treating any, up on your abandonment. There you go. Any other thoughts on the um, strategy of beating the CDC agency order? Yes.
0: And I think what's might happen is they might answer, instead of being silent, they might just write down on their, their paperwork that's received CDC order and turn it in. They won't know what to do, but they think that's the ban and they've done what they're supposed to do. And that's, that'll s- certainly slow down the process and now you're gonna get them into the
1: next month and into court. I don't, I don't think it slows down the process at all. That's their answer. And they have seven days to answer. Okay, they've answered. Now a court date is going to be set, and they're going to receive a summons to the court. And um, if they don't appear, they lose. And right. I get a writ, and I get a judgment, because I'm going to be there, or my representative is going to be there if I'm using an attorney. So... Um, you know, I, the fact that they answer um, CDC or or pandemic or I'm I'm dying or I don't you know blah blah blah, it's not going to slow down the magistrate court because exactly.
0: that's that that's scheduling is,
1: is is you know it may be backed up, but they're they're going to get to them.
0: So be it. Yes, I, I I like it when they have no answer
1: at all. Oh, that's the best. That's yes. that's the best. Where they whoop? No answer, you win. So, correct. but but the you know my experience has been that even if they answer, the likelihood that the correct person will be in court at the proper time and when the case is called that they will stand up is about. Sixty forty against. I can't tell you how many times I've been there, and somebody stands up and says, "I answer," and the judge says, "Now who are you?" Well, I'm the cousin. Wh- what? The cousins. <laughs> yeah, they couldn't. They couldn't come, so they sent their cousin. That's not what the summons said, and the judge is not going to be happy, because that's judges like to do like like to be obeyed. I learned that a long time ago. So. All right. Um, let's talk for just a second. Have you learned anything more about this $706 million that has been allotted to counties and municipalities, not allotted by county and municipality, but not to them, to relief agencies? Um, wh- what have you heard in the last week? John,
0: I have tried. I've talked to several people. I have done some research online and I just hit a dead end every time. Made some calls, left some messages, got a I'm, few.
1: Disconnected. I am stunned. I I have never seen twenty-five billion dollars disappear so fast and nobody knows nothing about it. And and I repeat what I did that last week. Um Here are the questions, (laughs) and what is it called? They all call it something different. How can I find out about the program in my county or city? You probably can't. What is the process? Nobody knows. How and when will I get paid? Again, there's nothing that I have turned up, and is it worth the hassle? I'm wondering. Um, we know that it's technically called the Emergency Rental Assistance Program, ERAP, but nobody calls it that. Some people call it the CARES Act Relief. Some people call it CARES ERAP. Some people call it none of the above. There's the technical name for the program, and I've never seen that before, <laughs> except in a legal document. Um, how can I find out about it? The state knows nothing. HUD knows nothing. The county knows nothing. The local housing authority is clueless. The United Way knows nothing, and the Salvation Army knows nothing. Once so again,
0: media is talking about one thing, but maybe we should call the uh,
1: the press and see who's
0: your source. I did.
1: Of I I did. Ian, I there was there was an article on the AJC about it, and and the gal wrote me back and said. Um, said, well, um, the CARES Act had relief money earlier in the year, and it's her understanding that the same relief agencies will be using it, will be dispersing it. And I said, how can I find out who they are? She says, well, there's no way of knowing.
0: Go figure. Right.
1: (laughs) So we did get this from Richard Blocker, who is one of our faithful viewers, and, and he sent this in, and I thought this was very interesting. And look at what Clayton County is calling it. First, it's being distributed by the Community Development HUD Programs Division. It's not by HUD, and it's not by Clayton County. Who are these people? I don't know. But they got $4 million bucks, and look. Where it's going. Here is their they somebody created this flyer. And supposedly, if you go to this link, which I am highlighting, let me get my pointer going. Well, that's not a very good highlighter. Right here, um, if if you go to this easy to remember link, right. Form.jotform.com forward slash 203485994418064 Got that, everybody? That is where you can fill out an application. Now, that does not seem to be the same application that somebody else is using. But if you're in Clayton County, you can do that. If you call that information number, it there's no answer. Okay, so here is. The assistance is for Clayton County residents only that have been financially impacted, and here are the qualifying agencies. Now, I'm going to just make fun of one of these. I'm just going to say House of Dawn. Okay. I'm, I'm not personally familiar with House of Dawn. Ian, when was the last time... You were at the House of Dawn.
0: I've never been there. I guess it always comes up around Dawn and disappears. Well, I, I don't know.
1: I knew I, I had an employee years ago named Dawn, and, but I never went to her house. But <laughs> okay. I guess that would have been House of Dawn. <laughs> that um, would be my definition, yes. What would you guess would happen if I called the phone number for House of Dawn?
0: Somebody might pick up. That would be no. my guess.
1: No, no. These people don't pick up. It says, the number you have called is not being answered due to COVID. Please listen to the following 100 options because they have changed recently. And then uh, the outgoing message would get to about option 50, and then they'd hang up on you. That's
0: voicemail rat race. Absolutely.
1: Project Real Life Youth OTC, which I assume is over-the-counter, is that? Now we're talking
0: GameStop. Now we're going into... We something- are! We,
1: right. th- there may be a connection between GameStop and getting this ERAP money. In other I words, you- I am going to play the role of the institutional investor and be- of the hedge fund and bet against any of us getting any of this money.
0: <laughs> okay. And well, be careful. They lost a couple billion dollars last week. There, apparently.
1: John. Apparently. But I've got the government on my side, and they have made this extremely difficult. Don't bother calling the Nehemiah Project because they are out, out of funding. funding. Yes. <laughs> How can they be out of funding? I didn't even know where there was funding in the first place. Unbelievable. Um, money. <laughs> and I can't find a list like this for DeKalb County, where most of my properties are, or Glen County. I called Glen County, and they all said, well, we heard it was coming, but we don't know anything about it. Uh, somebody did, you, you supplied this, thank you, um, that something about $3.5 million from the home savers, but I don't think this is ERAP money. I think this was other money that they couldn't give away, and they have decided to repurpose it. I, but I may be entirely wrong. I have no idea. I just want to know, who are these people? Um, I, I, Senior Services North Fulton Incorporated. And by the way, if you click any of these, they, they don't work. It's right. unfortunate, yeah. but... They just don't seem to work. So anyway, um, this is where I ended up left. We're at 57 minutes after the hour, so I think we're just about out of time. But, um, Ian, let's let's wrap up by just you and me real quickly covering just some key points that you and I want landlords and investors to keep in mind. And um, – I'll read them out loud. I'm going to ask you to give a very brief comment on each one. Ian, landlording is a business. It's not a hobby.
0: Absolutely. And you have to set yourself up with a corporation, and you are the property manager.
1: Absolutely. Um, I say get a strong lease agreement. Why?
0: Because things are going to come up, and the killer lease is just chock full of excellent situations to help you stay um
1: profitable take a complete rental application and implement full screening of prospective tenants. Absolutely and most important,
0: you're allowed to screen and ask legal questions
1: and I, I want to comment there, Ian is so right when he says legal questions. And if you don't know the difference between legal questions and disallowed questions, then you better find out before you start doing this because you run the risk of a fair housing violation or even worse. Ian, collect the rent. Now, this is advice for my friend Steve Jordan, who is probably watching... Probably watching right now, he's decided not to collect the rent. I can't believe he said that. Collect? Why do you collect the
0: rent, Ian? If you don't pay, you don't stay. And I'm very proud to tell you, John, that my wife and my kids will repeat that to me before I even tell them. They've heard I'll- me say it so many times.
1: <laughs> I love it. Uh, Why is it important? You've got somebody who's been there a couple of years. They usually pay the rent. They're pretty good. Why do we need to inspect the interior at least one time a year? Because batteries for smoke detectors are not for toys. They don't last forever. And the other thing is we want to just get a sense of what's going on inside the house. Are they taking care? Remember that for only maybe twelve or $1,500, you've given them an asset maybe worth $150,000. And you have a right to see what it looks like and are they taking care of it or not. Why do we need to do a move-in and move-out checklist procedure? Because things do change over time and
0: normal wear and tear are accepted, but many times it's not normal wear and tear.
1: And what happens, Ian, if we don't follow the law, and do a move-in and move-out checklist in a timely manner. Their attorney will have something to work with. Boy, they sure will. <laughs> and and last, and you and I have agreed on this for years, your tenant is a valuable asset. Much better asset than GameStop, absolutely. <laughs> I, well, I, is GameStop a store? Is that what it is?
0: Yes. The thing about GameStop, John, just... A lot of the listeners know it, it, it was just a stock sitting there. It's got some issues because it, nowadays kids buy um, their games online. Right. So they were having some issues, and that's why the hedge funds were betting against them, that they were going to have some financial problems. But, boy, it's been sort of exciting watching uh, what, what the uh, mob has
1: done. Well, you may have to call me later and explain to me what happened because you remember I said earlier, I don't invest in things I don't understand and puts and calls is something I do not understand. But uh, we've got a lot of member questions we're not going to get to. Folks, you're always welcome uh, to send um, an email to me or Ian and we'll do the best that we can. Folks, that's a 30 mark 4 John Adams radio show video podcast on behalf of Ian Robbins I am John Adams reminding you your financial future is not a matter of chance it's a matter of choice make your choice a good one so long everybody